HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what is exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is Hajime Sato, who is a chef owner of Sozai near Detroit, Michigan. He has been known for keenly pursuing sustainability, which is very challenging for sushi chef for the last 14 years. And his efforts have been widely recognized, and this year, Hajime became one of the five nominees for the James Beard Foundation's Outstanding Chef Award. The James Beard Foundation Awards are often called the Academy Awards for Culinary Professionals, so you can tell how powerful Hajime's voice is. So today we'll discuss how Hajime came to the U.S. and became a sustainability-minded chef, how he managed to offer sustainable seafood at his Japanese restaurant, Sozai, what unknown, delicious, and sustainable seafood we should try, what we should do now for the future to keep eating enjoying seafood, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on the iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Hajime Sato. Hello, Hajime. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for so, having me. Yeah, this is exciting. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you. You have so much to share with us. So, uh, first of all, to get to know you, where are you from, and what did you eat when you grew up? Uh, that's an interesting question. I grew up in the uh, <clears throat> city called Utsunomiya, which is about a couple hours away from Tokyo. Um, my mother's side from Tokyo, actually, um, um, close to Ikebukuro, it's uh, more like a stamachi, uh, which is kind of like old downtown kind of thing. My father's from Hokkaido, uh, so I grew up eating a lot of uh, 
seafood from Hokkaido, and um, um, <laughs> everybody can guess how old I am. When I was growing up in the Tokyo, <clears throat> they had a, a well water, like Ido, and uh, where there is a lot of good um, water, I uh, used to go to a tofu shop with the uh, little bucket and get the tofu all the time because, the, you know, tofu is about 80% water. So, um, so eating a really good tofu and really good, um, you know, water uh, in the middle of Tokyo and eating good seafood from a, um, a Hokkaido. That's how I grew up. Mm, that's why you grew up healthy like you are now. And uh, the, uh, another note is that the, when I was growing up, there's a lot of um, in a, in a farmland. So uh, I did, um, you know, harvesting nobiru, which is kind of like a ramp, um, you know, huki, uh, uh, even uh, inago, which is the grasshoppers. So we used to catch them and uh, fry them, eat them. So a lot of um, um, just wild uh, things that I used to eat, I guess. Right. Well, I've eaten grasshoppers, and they're pretty good. And uh, even back then, you became sustainable already. So that makes sense. <laughs> what are you doing with what you're doing? <laughs> right. So and when and why did you move to the U.S.? Uh, so <clears throat> it's kind of a hard subject. But the, uh, when I was in high school, at the time, um, high school was really um, uh, strict and um you know i got hit by teachers all the time and just didn't want uh that kind of environment uh, anymore and uh, uh fortunately my parents had some exchange student we were hosting an exchange student from like australia canada stuff like that so i did uh know that exchange student program existed so uh, long story short i took test and uh uh, came to U.S. Um, in 1987 uh, as an exchange student, and um, basically, I'm still here. Mm, that's interesting. And people might like cringe by hearing a high school teacher hit you, but I think back then it's a kind of more strict, kind of like a martial arts kind of mindset. And oh yeah. Right thing. So that I think is hopefully it's changed a lot. But uh, yeah, that. That used to be a part of Japanese uh, school education, which is crazy. But, yes, uh, right. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and then how did you get into cooking and where did you study cooking uh, Japanese food? So, um, I guess I was a weird kid who was uh, hanging out with my grandma all the time, um, which is a lot uh, in, you know, a lot, a lot common in Japan at the time. Uh, I don't know if you did it, but um, to make katsuobushi uh, in the box, uh, that was my job. Uh, you know, like uh, to break the kombu or like there's a, you know, uh, cleaning the hooky. A lot of things that my grandma uh, did, uh, I was a prep cook, right? So to do the inari and all the stuff. So I guess I was cooking all the time with my grandma. Uh, but of course, you know, when you're high school and, you know, I went to college and uh, I didn't do any of it. Uh, but I started working at the restaurant and uh, as a just, uh, you know, uh, the side job, and um, I kind of slowly got into it, and uh, I became an apprentice under this uh, one sushi chef in Seattle for a while, and that's how I learned how to make sushi. Mm, interesting. So uh, before we move on to the next, uh, so, you know, katsuobushi, bonito flake, uh, if you live ab abroad, you just only think of the fluffy, uh, already shaped one, but the original shape is very hard. People say it's the hardest food ever exists in, in, on Earth. And uh, there is a shaving kind of equipment. 
And uh, my dad got a very fancy one. And it was so sharp, I was afraid to touch. But my dad was in charge of shaving it. <laughs> it smells amazing, right? Because you, you shave it. It's just, uh, you know, I like you to turn the butter or something and then eat it. There was something very fresh about um just shaved katsubushi. So. Oh, yeah. I, I used to uh, eat it all the time. So the, my grandma's going to yell at me because, like, stop eating. I, I need that for dashi, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Awesome. So um, we'll take a quick break here. And then when we come back, we'll dive into Hajime's sustainable philosophy and practice at Sozai restaurant. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on HRN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aki Katayama. My guest today is Hajime Sato, who is a chef owner of Sozai near Detroit, Michigan. And he has been nationally highly recognized for pursuing sustainability, which is very challenging for sushi chef. So let's talk about your restaurant, Sozai. So you open your award-winning uh, Mashiko in Seattle in 1994 and moved to Michigan in 2019 and opened Sozai in May 2021. And since then, you have achieved tremendous success. And uh, as I said earlier, for example, you were one of the five nominees for the James Beard Awards Outstanding Chef Award. And James, Award, uh, James Beard Award is also called the Academy Award for Culinary Professionals. And outstanding chef means you are the best actor or actress in the whole country. So, um, so how, I mean, the, first of all, Sozai means, uh, Japanese something special. So what's the meaning of Sozai for our listeners? So it's a wordplay. Um, so, uh, the listener, hopefully they know what kanji is. It's the, um, Japanese, uh, like Chinese character ish that we use have two different, um, uh, pronunciation for one character. And uh, Sozai usually means um, two characters. So it's like everything. And Zai is usually uh, vegetable or food. And uh, my name, Hajime, uh, can be read uh, Hajime or So. Um, and uh, to create, that's the meaning of it. And I switched the first um, kanji to my name, sort of the uh, to create food. It's a wordplay. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm. Okay, and then uh, soza itself in Japanese uh, has a special meaning, right? Right, and uh, so if you shorten it to um, make a sozai, which means that the rogue ingredient. So, you know, it has a two different meaning. It's kind of fun. So that's why I like the sozai. Okay, okay. So the pro- 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 pronunciation is sozai? 
It, it can be whatever. That's what's kind of fun about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you choose. All right. So that's awesome. So, um, and so why did you um, choose your name, restaurant Sozai? Like Sozai, like uh, ingredients driven? Yeah, ingredients driven and to create food uh, in a way that's kind of, um, you know, micro and macro in a way that you have to think globally uh, to create food. And uh, Sozai is like a micro, right? Like it's a, a micro that's uh, like a what's um, shun, uh, like what's uh, in season, what's uh, more local, what's sustainable. So it's, again, it's got a kind of double, triple meaning of that. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a fun name. I don't know. I, at the time I was uh, thinking about it, I needed a name, so I kind of... decided that and now like oh that means that that means that too it's kind of cool so i don't know (laughs) yeah own reflection you picked the right right name i guess right so So, and what kinds of menus do you offer at sozai or sozai so um uh we do about 90 percent uh we do have menu but the uh 90 percent of what we do is omakase so it's a chef's choice, and we have different tiers uh, from like a little more safer side to more adventurous uh, side, um, from like seven to eleven course meal, and it's all chef's choice. Uh, that gives me a leverage of uh, choosing what's fresh and what's available on that day. Mm, right, and then so this is another key question. So you are known for strong focus on sustainability, uh, which is becoming increasingly important in most every aspect of lives now. So according to Soza's website, in 2009, you decided to use only sustainable seafood. Why? Um, I, you know, people ask me that all the time, and I, my answer is, why not? Why am I that special, right? I, I hope that everybody should be doing it. And uh, I kind of resent the fact that the I'm the uh, I'm like uh, you're trailblazers and they're you're great and you're so unique. Like I should not be unique. Sh- everybody should be doing it. But unfortunately, a uh, lot of like uh, I don't know um, <clears throat> what people eat is just like a given by big corporation or trend or whatever. And people don't really think about where people's uh, what uh, where the uh, food is coming from. And uh, sometimes you are eating endangered species without you knowing it. And to me, um, you know, uh, we talk about computers, internet, cell phones, all the stuff that the people have. And we feel like we have so much information um, uh, in front of us, but we're not really using it in a way that's like, okay, so if you study, let's say EO, for instance, that's endangered. Uh, quite a bit. Uh, all you have to do is click on the EO is sustainable or not, but people still eat it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not blaming all the people because people don't have time, but at the same time, that as a chef or as a distributor or <clears throat> any of the expert, we should be alarming those facts that's, um, that's going on in this world. So to me, it's oh, the natural progression of what any restaurant or any distributor or any of the uh, uh, food industry people who is involved in this uh, thing called people eating every day. So what should we do? And uh, 
um, something's endangered. Maybe you should not eat it. Maybe this has got a huge environmental impact. Maybe we should not eat it. So maybe study touch more, maybe 10% more and just change a little bit. And uh, to me, knowing what I know and just going exactly like it used to be was not acceptable. So I hope that the people are doing a little bit more. But to me, I should not be that special. I don't know mm. if that makes sense. Right, it does make sense. And um, but then you know, uh, in two thousand nine, you started hundred percent sustainable. So was is that a gradual accumulated awareness of sustainability, or something happened? Like one event made you to decide shifting to hundred percent sustainable. So uh, what happens when um, the audience, uh, you guys coming to the sushi bar? Yeah, you don't care about the uh, what's sustainable or not. Maybe you're on a date. You know, maybe I should not even talking to you because you know, uh, uh, because it's a special night. So people don't ask me about you know what's sustainable, what's not. People ask me like what's trendy or what's cool, or whatever. But when I was teaching how to make sushi, that happened. I've been doing it for a long time, and people ask me the question that's different. Like, why do you use this fish? Or do you use this fish in Japan? Is that different? How is that different? Is it sustainable? So there's a lot of different questions at the uh, uh, sushi making class. That's the time that I start um, looking at fish little different angle. And that's the time that I start learning about like, holy cow, I'm actually learning that bluefin tuna is not sustainable. Then I go to my restaurant and say, hey, isn't the bluefin tuna great? And I felt really torn and I felt like I was just hypocrite, right? Like, what am I doing? I know this is horrible and I'm serving that in my restaurant. And that was kind of like that wake up call for me. Mm, right. So, well, with every day exposed to what to make, you have to choose. So there was like a, I think you had to choose at some point. That was 2009. So, and then, um, of course, your restaurant is based on seafood. So um, how do you manage to be fully sustainable at Sozai? Sozai? So um, I'm going to claim this, and you say 100% sustainable, and I hope I am, but it is almost impossible, meaning I cannot check every uh, fishery myself. I cannot trust or I can I cannot doubt uh, every uh, seafood purveyor or like a distributor, right? So... I try to be, but there are some mistakes too. That uh, one time, uh, people, uh, everybody said this one products, uh, the shrimp. I'm not going to name it, and they said it was sustainable. I was using it, and later on, found out it was a horrible company and using sustainability as a uh, kind of marketing. And uh, I was using it, and after I noticed that, I quit using it. But it's a bottle, right? What's sustainable or not changes all the time. What's sustainable to me is what's sustainable to me changes all the time. And it's a it's an ongoing uh, studying and the progression and uh, uh, getting better every day. So uh, it's tough, and um, you know I hope that it's one hundred percent. But even at the time I changed, probably I did like you know close to ninety percent, and even right now, you know, hopefully close to hundred, but probably ninety nine percent, right? Uh, even I'm working on so many different products that I want to get, and. Uh, if I'm getting products, I still study about, hey, uh, where is this coming from? It's been a while. Um, let's revisit and see if they're still sustainable or not. Or some of the sus- stuff that's endangered is still 
endangered. Maybe it actually came out and maybe you can use it more now. So it is a lot of studying. Mm. Right. So do you use the, uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch List to measure sustainability? Um, yes, that is, um, well, I don't, the, to use one um, um, measurement to measure um, uh, everything is a little uh, too scary. So I look at, of course, Seafood Watch is the one that it's it's awesome. And I recommend so many people to do that. But uh, I still have the friends from the uh, University of Washington fishery people. Uh, I talk to so many different people um, that they know about sustainability. And um, yeah, they tell me a lot of things. So, uh, but that being said, uh, Seafood Watch is great. There is actually a sushi app that you can download. Uh, and so you can give all the sushi a hard time with that. So please do, including me. <laughs> great. So, yeah, it's really great to have more than one um, criteria. And uh, I think uh, having more criteria makes us, all of us, uh, more aware. So I think, uh, of course, Monterey, uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, I think Whole Foods uses it too. And I... I'm not fully aware of which one is now at this point very sustainable or chili and sea bass, all those things. So, yeah, I was curious how you use it, but I'm just glad you have more than one and especially like hands-on people. So, um, and you said that uh, you encourage uh, people, your guests, to try omakase menu, right? So um, how is it contributing uh, very well to stay sustainable compared to regular a la carte menu? That is such a good question, right? So I don't know if I can survive as a regular restaurant. Here's the reason why. Uh, including you, if you go to the um, uh, sushi bar, you expect certain things, right? Maybe toro, maybe hamachi, maybe uh, unagi, right? So a lot of things you expect to have. So if you come to the regular restaurant, or then you expect to have those things. But if you come to my restaurant, we don't have any of that, right? So uh, if it's a regular, let's say regular menu, they look at menu as like, oh, you don't have this, you don't have this, you don't have this, right? People get disappointed. And that happened quite a bit at the time I uh, changed to sustainable uh, Sushwar and Seattle. So what um, Omakase does is that the, uh, instead of I'm not having stuff that you're looking for, I can give you you never thought about you're going to have. Right, so that's a uh, uh, complete one eighty on what you will eat. So uh, I use that as my advantage, and I'm gonna give you a lot of things that you never thought you would order, and you're gonna be so satisfied to the point that you don't even notice that you didn't have any of the stuff you usually get. So um, yeah, uh, the momakase is our weapon to um, introduce a lot of things. Mm, right. I think uh, also, uh, to be honest, um, the majority of us do not know what to order. So we just end up uh, what we know, uh, ordering what we know, like tuna or salmon or something we can recognize. And uh, it's not their intention to not to be sustainable, but fish is so hard to remember names and how it looks. And it's so seasonal, and especially sushi place, you have no idea what it is. So uh, I think omakase is a good educational tool and also discovery tool 
for new flavors, and which I do all the time because I don't know too much about the name of the fish. So I think it's a, it's a great idea, not just for sustainability. Even when I go to Japan, I usually do omakase, right? Like uh, when I go to, you know, used to go to Hokkaido um, <clears throat> and uh, go to Hokkaido and I don't know what's uh, in season. I just say, hey, what do you got? Just give me some stuff that you think it's really good. And that um, I learned so much about the culture and, uh, you know, what's in season, all the stuff that I never thought about having and I get. So, you know, I, I learned so much every day of doing that, right? So, yeah, I think it's a good way to um, order too. Mm, right. And uh, there is a kind of misbelief that being sustainable can mean sacrificing taste, which is completely wrong. But what do you think about it? Who said that? I'll, I'll talk to them. Who's <laughs> 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 Yeah, somebody tweeted it. Man, assholes. Um, I, you know, there's a stigma of like uh, when you go sustainable or when you are environmentally friendly or when you are health conscious, then uh, suddenly flavor is gone, right? Uh, or um, I don't know. It's I think stigma and an image of it. I don't know who starts those things, and uh, I I don't know. I, I you know I said that I want to talk to them, but I just don't want to talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, as a counterpunch, you can maybe tell us uh, some of your favorite yet to be discovered sustainable seafood. Uh, name a few, or as many as possible, if you'd like. Here's the thing. There's a lot, like, start with hikarimono, right? Hikarimono is a shiny fish. So, uh, micro sardines, uh, you know, aji, horse micro, all kind of stuff that the, uh, <clears throat> I'm really working on getting those all the time. Unfortunately, most of the, uh, those small fish uh, becomes a fish feed for like bluefin tuna or hamachi, uh, yellowtail, stuff like that. So, you know, we try to get those things as much as I can. I'm getting uh, octopus that's bycatch from a um, cod fishery. Otherwise, they throw away about 20, 30,000 pounds of uh, octopus probably each month throwing away. So that's coming up. Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, I can get more salmon eggs that the, uh, that's otherwise they're thrown away. That I don't know. There's so many things out there. And uh, there's... Uh, uh, Blue Runner, which is just from Florida, that's uh, Shimaji, but nobody's catching it. They think it's trash. Uh, and you cannot even get Shimaji in Japan, but you can get, ev- you know, it, it's everywhere in Florida, but nobody catches it, right? So, I mean, there's so many things we should be eating instead of the endangered species. Right. Um, you know, I, I know kind of go on for like the next two hours. So, yeah, I'll stop. <laughs> Right. It's uh, an interesting thing, right? It's just about knowledge of it. And, uh, you know, otoro used to be thrown away in Japan because Japanese people didn't like fatty fish. And now it's a price. And uh, even in America, people didn't know that was edible. The otoro is now, I mean, five times more than regular uh, sushi items. So um, those things is about how you get used to eating it you have the knowledge and then you get kind of you know it's just a part of your essence of eating sushi so uh like hikarimono you just mentioned 
this shiny fish that's, uh, some people think it's uh, fishy, but if it's prepared well with vinegar, um, hands down, that's my favorite uh, sushi item. And there's one um, place only serves uh, shiny fish, hikarimono, under the train station. It's a gadoshita, and uh, the place is always packed. I have to book like a couple months in advance before I go back to Japan. So uh, it's about um, how you learn, how you try it, and your makasa menu is a great um, outlet to get to know uh, yet to be um, star fish. So I'm so glad you're serving so many great um, sustainable fish uh, through your makasa because I'm looking at your Instagram page. Um, I'm getting so hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we the, we got the Boston Micro, and recently we got the, uh, it's not Instagram yet, but the uh, uh, Aji that's from uh, Northern California. It's so good. It's so good. It, it like, it's like, it's got so much flavor to it. You know, I'm sorry, and maybe I should not say that as sushi, but I'd rather eat that than Otoro. I'm sorry. It's so good. You <laughs> know? Yeah. It's good. I think hikarimono is not um, appreciated enough because uh, I think it's so highly perishable and people tend not to spend time and energy to prepare it. But once it's done, it's the bomb of a mummy. And uh, yeah, I agree. Otoro tastes boring compared to good aji or hamachi or... Ah, <laughs> you, are, you are a good person. <laughs> I judge people. You're a good person. Yeah, it's just delicious. Yeah, I mean, seriously, um, that's a mummy, uh, essential mummy. So, anyway, so uh, we can keep talking about this, uh, you know, delicious hidden um, items, uh, which has not been introduced, but it's a seafood. Uh, it's the whole ocean. I don't know how many thousand species uh, swimming who has to be eaten. Um, I think it's going to be a different landscape in five, ten years because we are in a position to be able to choose um, sustainably what we're going to eat. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. But um, so what is your philosophy for cooking besides being fully sustainable? Hmm. What is my philosophy of cooking? Um, hopefully it tastes good. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, people tell me that my... Uh, uh, flavor is like a uh, yasashi. It's like tender. Um, I, I guess uh, I still go with like a more of the round flavor <clears throat> of my grandma. Uh, people, um, how do I say it? Um, a lot of restaurants you go to. Um, to me, uh, restaurant flavor is too sharp. And to the point that that's what the restaurant requires, right? If you go there and you want to notice. Uh, this is salty, this is uh, vinegary, this is uh, sugary, and there's a lot of that so that you kind of feel the sensation. But my flavoring is more like a kind of make you relax, um, just kind of like a tamaki, like ah, after you <laughs> eat. That's that's what I'd like. Uh, so to me, my flavoring is more like a, after hard day of work or hard months that you're going to have. If I can get a little edge off, if you eat my, even just a first miso soup, you're going to get, you know, just, just a little something. Um, uh, maybe also imono I made, it's just a little relaxing for you. That's, that's my philosophy. Mm, like a healing in Japanese is the yashi, kind of like a nourishment 
for your heart and for your body as well. Right, right, right. I think um, the food can be, how do you call it, like intense flavor and kind of fancy. And, uh, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, put in Instagram, you know, like uh, it's just so go, go, go. But uh, to me, uh, the food is who you are. Like, uh, and sometimes it just gets too intense. Uh, and everyday life, you have the computer, you have to listen to podcasts. Uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. And, uh, you know, and going to the restaurant can be a little stressful. But I hope that the, uh, I can give just a little glimpse of, uh, not hope, but it just, you know, like maybe you can go on a little bit more because of my food. That's, that's kind of like my philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think your grandmother would be very happy. If she could hear what you're saying now. <laughs> I hope so. Right. Okay. So, um, well, actually, um, I heard that you pursue sustainability beyond the food you serve. For example, you try to provide sustainable work conditions um, for your staff. So could you tell us about it? So same as anything, I, you know, um, I feel like, this top 1% or 1% uh, is having so much money. Uh, and uh, at the time that the uh, workers are getting so minimum of uh, uh, what the friction of the uh, wage, right? And to me, uh, again, maybe I'm old school, but I don't think I'm going to retire. I don't think I'm going to have one more restaurant. You know, I want to do what I want to do. So... From that point of view, literally, um, it's important that the, uh, all those people I work with is uh, having a not having good time, but you know, having you know, help they're having a you know good time too. But I want them to be with me for a long time. In Moscow, there's a lot of uh, uh, employees who was there for ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, right? And they become more of the part of the restaurant, part of uh, my life. So in order to do that they have to have at least a good living wage and just have a um, buffer when something happens. So to me, um, you know, hopefully all the employer can just look at that as that uh, so that the uh, make sure that the uh, employees are taken care of and they work with you. And uh, I'm and another side is that the I'm not one of those chefs or owner that never go to the restaurant. I'm there all the time. So I have to work with those people. I want them to have a good time with me, you know? And <laughs> right. So, yeah, I don't want to be with somebody who's, I don't know, not having a good time and spend like 10 hours with them. Like, no, that'd be horrible. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Right. Well, I, I heard you offer even health insurance, which is not very common in uh, food industry in America. So, yeah, I think uh, the energy of the restaurants changes and, that's the real sustainability to support sustainability uh, on your sushi counter. So that's amazing. Like an employee has to kind of think about not saving like, five, you know, five, ten dollars out of the uh, employees, but just think about like next 10 years. You know what I mean? So mm. anyhow, sorry. Go ahead. Well, um, so you are in Michigan. So what is the biggest challenge in serving sustainable Japanese seafood dishes in Michigan? Um because it may be harder than in bigger coastal cities like Seattle, uh, where you used to be, or New York, or L.A.? Um, I'm not going to lie. 
<laughs> it is harder. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Um, Seattle is much better uh, in terms of like I mean, as a hub of the Alaskan seafood, right? I mean, that alone is gonna give you like 200 different things that you can get easily. And I used to know a um, you know diver who uh, dive for the sea urchin, and I used to know a board captain who catch some stuff for me. That's not gonna happen, <clears throat> right? So. Yeah, I'm still struggling to get so many things. But at the, at the same time, I'm still learning. And, of course, for the sushi, I cannot get uh, lake fish because of parasites issue. But I do a lot of lake fish, uh, marinated in a sakekasu or miso or, you know, uh, yuanzuke or, like, a lot of things that the more traditional Japanese way of marinating fish that uh, I can use uh, from the uh, lakes. So that's exciting to me. And East Coast fish that I didn't know too much about, I'm getting uh, good to know that. The um, And one side is, of course, it's so hard. I'll be honest with you. Oh, my God. First year or so, like, I couldn't get anything. Like, I I don't, I, I, I was, I had a doubt. I don't know if I can do this. Um, but other side of the coin, I can tell you, is that the, uh, how many um, sustainable sushi bar in the United States? Like, one or two? Uh, or maybe five, it's not increasing, right? And, you know, they said it's so hard to do this. Now, if I can do this in Detroit um, um, proper, you know, Metro Detroit, then there's no excuse so whatsoever for any of the sushi bars uh, that um, exist in any of the coastal town. It's so much easier to do. So why can't they do that? Come on. I can mm -hmm. say that to you. Right. right. If you can do it in the Midwest, they can do it easily. What are they waiting for? Come on. Right. It's like uh, if you can get to New York, you can do it anywhere. It's like you can make sushi in uh, New Michigan, either Detroit, then you can do it anywhere in terms of sustainability. So that's amazing. But where, I mean, do you have specific vendors, uh, fish suppliers to satisfy your needs, uh, sustainable needs to? Like you have a couple specific people or you have to go like multiple vendors? Oh, my God. So many different uh, vendors. Uh, my wife hates me because she's doing all the paperwork. And like, you know, <laughs> I, w I wish that I can have like two or three big distributors and that's it. No, I have like one item from this, one item from that. The the key to this, and that's why it is hard, is that the uh, most of the uh, restaurants has a distribution system or a distributor, salesperson, tell you what they have and you choose from that uh, selection. Me, I find a fish or whatever, shrimp, whatever, then I find who can get that for me. So it's a completely different 180 of how I get the fish. Mm -hmm. So um, I cannot depend on the distribution. And don't get me wrong. There's so many good uh, distributors, uh, distributor um, salesperson, all the stuff helping out. But it is really hard. So the first I do the research and make sure that it's good. Then uh, see if anybody can find it. But mm -hmm. that being said, there's a lot of uh, uh, people who's been helping me. They kind of know me by now this weird guy is going to buy some weird stuff so <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they have this i got this weird fish like, do you want it I'm like yeah yeah give it to me give it to me so 
so that relationship is slowly happening. And, uh, you know, of course, I had that more in Seattle, but slowly I feel like I can, I, I, I will getting help. So, do you see more uh, suppliers who can um, manage sustainability well? Uh, here's the problem uh, same as anything. Uh, they know sometimes what's sustainable or not, but money is there, right? So, <clears throat> it's really hard for them to just survive on sustainable um, seafood distribution. So, uh, maybe they have a good intention, but slowly kind of say, well, maybe I can have this on the side. Like, well, I can have this. And it gets bigger and bigger and more sales and more money. It's it's really hard for them to stay sustainable. Mm. And I, I get it. Um, but again, you know, if I can do it, anybody can do it, right? And I'm really frustrated with it, but... You know, I cannot tell other people what to do that much. So right. Well, I mean, by hearing what you've been saying, it's it's the most systematic way. I mean, the sushi chefs cannot try to be sustainable because if there's no supply, it's hard, and the whole system has to be changed. So, so how do you predict the future of sustainability I and mean, sustainable seafood? And what should we do? Um. Man. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a million dollar question. Sorry. <laughs> I told you before this interview that I, I don't want to tell you everything I know because I don't want to get depressed. You know, I have to give the audience hope too. But I have to scare you, right? It's it's bad. Oceans in a really bad condition. And uh, you see that, especially these days on hottest air, you know, hottest days. Uh, you know, a lot of storms, I mean, drought to um, too much rain to, I mean, you name it. it. It's it's a result of a lot of things, unfortunately, we did. Mm. To turn this around, it's going to be really tough. But I was kind of listening to this like a little uh, segment on the radio saying that even <clears throat> if everybody wait one more year to change a cell phone, Right that alone is going to reduce so much carbon footprint. It's crazy, right? Mm. That's it. Do you really need that cell phone like this year? Wait one more year, right? It's not going to change anything. That people cannot do, right? Even like I'll tell you, not eat eel uh, for one year. Can you do that? Maybe not. Or reduce 10% reduction of maybe every time you go to the sushi bar, you uh, order toro. But Maybe, I don't know, half of the time you don't and try different things, right? So there's a lot of small things people can do to make changes. I always say this, me alone cannot really do anything. This weird guy in, you know, Metro Detroit that does a sustainable sushi cannot change the world. But can you imagine entire world says, hey, Let's do 10% reduction or whatever that they can change. That can change the entire dynamic of the entire ecosystem. 10% reduction is something, right? Something they just decided as a country, as a uh, uh, individual, but people don't. Mm. That kind of frustrates me, right? right? Interesting. So, like, you know, the COVID was a good example, right? Because we stopped going out 
um, entirely just stop driving cars in many cases, then the whole ecology change for the better, like take a cooking back at least several years. So that proven if you change your behavior, something guaranteed it's going to happen. But uh, so for example, we talked about the hikarimono, like Mako to Kohara, something perishable, but the mummy bomb. I think it's 10% of the customers switched from Toro to hikarimono. I think that's great. And also, you know, it's a full of omega-3 fatty acids. Maybe your brain is going to be better too. So little thing. So uh, listeners, if you next time go to sushi place, stop thinking of salmon, bluefin tuna, then try some uh, shiny fish because it's good for you and it's delicious. So. Yeah, and less mercury too, right? Mm, it's yeah. good for you, right? So you know the, the you know if you're looking like maybe you don't you don't care about sustainability at all. You know you're an asshole. Okay, fine. But <laughs> if you if you are totally care about your health only, you should be still eating smaller fish, right? Totally. Yeah, anyhow. Right, right. So, uh, and also, I stress, hikarimono is the most delicious. That's my go-to. I mean, when I go to go back to Japan and go to any sushi restaurant, that it's so hard to hear I and mean, to find the good hikarimono because of the supply. And Japan is such a, you know, the treasure box for hikarimono. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a, I can be commissioned by Hikarimono company, <laughs> but... You're going to be a Hikarimono ambassador for the whole world. Yeah, I'll be very proud. Yes, excellent. <laughs> so, anyway, so what are your plans and dreams? <laughs> what are plans and dreams? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know. Um, um, I hope that I can keep going what I'm doing, you know? with all the stuff that I have. Um, this work is something that uh, is never ending, right? I can improve just a little bit tomorrow. Mm. And tomorrow, I can improve touch more uh, the day after tomorrow. That's the name of the game here. So, you know, I hope that I can improve touch more uh, in 20 years. And if I can <clears throat> uh, make, you know, 100 people more happy, you know, and that's my goal. And, um, you know, sustainability-wise, I don't know. Um, here's the thing. Um, you know, people, you know, I do appreciate it, James Beard and all the stuff too. But to me, it's a tool to reach out to more people, right? So, you know, even this interview, I really do appreciate you doing this because that the more people can just do a change just a little bit every single day. If I can convince like 10 more people um, a month even, that, you know, I don't think I'm that smart. I don't think I can do that much, but maybe there's the people who's smarter than me. Maybe they have, um, I don't know, some kind of like math degree, um, uh, engineer degree that you can change some things that maybe a new fishing gear or different kind of ports that's more sustainable, different car that's a little better. And those are the people, and maybe I can just kind of, you know, I give them a little bit of message so that they can do something about it. Mm. Right. And uh, you are often asked to speak at uh, schools for younger generations about sustainability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's very, very important. Yeah. Um, so I do tell them, like, look, I'm going to be gone. 
you know, uh, and, you know, I, I gonna die, you know, hopefully not pretty soon, but <clears throat> you know, I cannot live that long. So it's their generation. Right. And, and I actually apologize to them. Like, I'm so sorry. My generation kind of screwed up for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you have to deal with it. Um, but it is true that they have to deal with it. Right. So, you know, I guess, you know, there's a lot of politics and all that stuff too. And then sometimes, Oh man, I, I don't want to bitch so much about so many people, but like those billionaires, like trying to go to Mars, like, you know, there's a planet we can fix first before you go to Mars and people are still living here already, you know, and maybe we can work on that. Maybe, you know, it, it just, a um, um, I, I feel like we can do just touch better job every day. Mm, right. Yeah. And also there's a lot of uh, food for thoughts. So thank you so much. And uh, where can we find your updates online and on social media and uh, keep thinking about sustainability? Um, so uh, first of all, uh, just um, before me, like a sustainable seafood, seafood watch is great. Uh, Noah uh, has a re- really good um uh, uh, the website that you can look at to, um, and, uh, you know, just kind of ask around about, you know, different things. And, uh, uh, you can ask chef, uh, fishmongers, uh, just give them some questions so that they feel a little bit, uh, pressure by the consumer like you guys. That's what I had to say. Number one, uh, number two, if you, uh, wanted to, uh, see what I got, um, yeah, uh, the s- social media. I think we have Instagram and uh, Facebook. I think. Uh, sorry, I'm so not tech savvy. Um, I think it's Solzai, and uh, another one is Bancho Hajime. That's my thing, and uh, I try to post not just the fancy food, but uh, try to talk about the sustainability also. So, uh, yeah, and if you come to um, you know Metro Detroit, uh, stop by. Mm. Right. So I think uh, uh, the, the one you mentioned, NOAA, is noaaclimate.com. And of course, the Monterey Aquarium uh, Secret Watch, that's everywhere. Uh, so the newer restaurant's website, Sozai Restaurant, S-O-Z-A-I-R, uh, restaurant.com, and also Instagram, and uh, the Bancho Hajime, <laughs> that's also Instagram. So... This is amazing, and I thank you for your tons of inspiration, and I, I really think about what you do whenever next time go to a sushi restaurant and also when I purchase seafood. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneets at heritagewellnetwork.org or akikotema.com. Japan Eats is a weekly program and is always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Liam Porner, and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Eats is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.